Good morning, everyone. Um, I have a little unexpected surprise for you this morning. It certainly was a surprise to me. We will not be finishing the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. That's printed in your bulletin. Uh, and I prayed about whether to do this or not, just being sensitive to, to cultural moments as they come to us. And I was, I was reminded, arguably one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached through wartime. And he didn't mount the pulpit on Sunday and pretend there weren't bombs flying. Um, I'm told that there was an earthquake last night in Northeast Columbia. I know y'all felt it, right? Uh, people all over the Midlands evidently felt it. And there was an even bigger earthquake this past Friday that people all over America and even in other parts of the world felt with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I got up at 4 o'clock this morning, as is my custom on the Lord's Day, uh, to preach from Ecclesiastes 12, but I had this unsettledness in me from what I've seen uh, in, in articles and things coming out on social media the past few days, not just from unbelievers who support abortion, but from people who call themselves Christians. And y'all, I had to pray against my flesh. I really, I really wanted to be sure I wasn't just choosing to go this direction this morning um, because I felt like it or because I felt like I had a, a bone to pick. I wanted to know that it was spirit-led, and best I can tell, it has been. So there are two major problems I think Christians have in regard to this issue. Knowing why and to what extent abortion is wrong in the first place, and secondly, how to celebrate a win. That's what's been eating at me and what God put on my plate at 4.30 this morning. And as I prayed, it's not as though I heard an audible voice from heaven, but I just had a sense in my spirit, you know, you, you just gonna, you're just going to ignore the elephant in the room? You're going to ignore the thing you know is every, on everybody's minds, the questions that people have, and just press on with that sermon you've prepared? Pretend like nothing happened here? And I couldn't do it. The truth is this. Many Christians don't seem to know why they believe what they believe about the sanctity of human life, and even more Christians simply don't know how to be happy. If we believe what we say we believe, that God is good and he's in control, as we've talked about in Ecclesiastes up to this point, that Jesus is reigning now and he's in the business of redeeming and bringing justice and making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet, Psalm 110, 1 Corinthians 15, other places, then why should it surprise us when we see a small ripple of what that looks like in the world? Why can't we be happy about it? We need to understand that abortion is not a political issue. That's, that's what everyone on the other side of this argument wants you to believe, is that it's a political issue. It is not. It is a moral issue. We need to not get entangled in the left-right issue, okay? And we need to stand on the authority of Scripture and recognize it is a right and wrong issue. And we, Christians need to stop throwing wet blankets on small victories that show us the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world and praise God and learn how to celebrate for Christ's sake. So here are two points, and we'll look at some text this morning that will help us to see where this comes from. 
Here's the first point. Abortion is not a black and white issue. It's a life and death issue. Haven't you heard people try to nuance it to death and say, well, it's not that cut and dry, you know? It's more complicated than that. It's not a black and white issue. You can agree with them. It's not a black and white issue. It is a life and death issue. We'll talk more about what the Bible says about the sanctity of life, and we'll talk about some of the arguments that those who support abortion use to justify their position, how to handle some of those objections with people that you talk to. And listen, don't, don't try to avoid the awkward conversations, all right? Don't try to avoid the, the awkward conversation. Everyone on the other side of this issue has something to say. Do you have something to say? Yes. And what you say should be grounded in truth and reality. And where is truth and reality grounded? In the very character of God and his revealed word to us. Here's the second point. It's okay to celebrate the downfall of evil. You don't have to cry for the losing team to be a good Christian. You know, maybe we're just so used to losing. I don't know. Maybe we're just so used to losing, but we need to know how to recognize a win is a win. We're in a battle, y'all. Wartime is on. And you're about to see it more and more, not less. So we need to be prepared for war. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, we don't war according to the flesh. That's not how we war. Okay? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power nonetheless to destroy strongholds, he says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Here's the difference between their weapons and our weapons. Their weapons bring death. Ours bring life. And y'all, we've got to bring it. Point number one. Abortion isn't a black and white issue, it's a life and death issue. What does God say about human life and when it begins? Let's look at some text. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God says man is created in his own image. Unlike all of the other things that he created, we bear the very image of the God who made us. That's why murder's wrong. That's why. Not because it's icky, not because it's yucky. That's why murder is wrong, because it's the destruction of another image bearer of God. That's why we, we love our neighbor and don't eat our neighbor, right? That's why we, it's okay to eat hamburgers, but not man burgers, right? Unbelievers know this stuff, don't they? It's because we all know, we all know, having been made in the image of God, we all know it in our bones. We just try to ignore it when it's convenient for us. People will say we're, we're just bipedal mammals that, you know, until, until you try to take something away, then we have value and dignity and worth. We're made to know those things. Everyone knows. Psalm 8, 4 through 8. This is what God says about life. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yea, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Human beings are not animals. I had a guy argue with me that a baby in the earliest stages of development wasn't, wasn't human, it was potentially human. I asked him, well, what else could it potentially be? You know, it's, it's not a wait-and-see game. It's From conception, it's a human being. It's not something else, right? It's not like if we wait and see, we're, we're going to be surprised and a potato's going to come out. He explained to me that the zygote stage, in the zygote stage, it's like an acorn that has the potential to become a tree. And then he scolded me, reminded me he had a a medical degree from the University of Georgia, and not to talk down to him. I told him, surely somebody with an education in medicine from a prestigious university like the University of Georgia knows the difference between human reproduction and an acorn. Human life is at conception, and it's human. How do we know? Psalm 139, 13 through 16 for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. There's no magic fairy dust in the birth canal that makes a baby matter. The baby matters because God says it does. Jeremiah 1.5, this is what God said about Jeremiah when he called him to, to be a prophet to his people. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Ephesians 1 Verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We were made on purpose, and God had us in mind before we ever got here before we drew our first breath. There are a lot more texts we can look at, but let's look at just one more regarding whether unborn babies have any sort of rights. Do their lives matter in terms of law and justice? Exodus 21, verses 22 through 23 says this, when men strive together, when they're fighting, quarreling, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fine, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. If you kill a baby in its mother's womb, God says the only justice is the death penalty. Life for life. That's the value God places on the lives of the unborn. 
whether the parents want that baby or not, is entirely inconsequential. Its value is not determined by its desirability to man. Its value is determined by the God who made him in his own image. Period. Some objections. Some common objections to to this point of view. A baby inside the woman's body is a part of her body. My body, my choice, right? That is scientifically false. At the point of conception, a baby in its mother's womb already has its own DNA and all of the biological data that will make he or she into whatever he or she will become. That's the science of it. Here's the common sense of it. A baby has its own heart, brain, arms, legs, feet, eyes. That's clearly someone else's body. Mother doesn't have two heads and four eyes and four arms and four legs, so on and so forth, right? It's clearly someone else's body. The body that's growing inside the mother's body is not her body. It belongs to someone else. God's word tells us it is, that it's life, and science and common sense confirms it. Clump of cells. I've heard this one. It's insignificant. We can kill it because it's just a clump of cells. Based on their definition, so am I. Can you kill me? The only difference between me and a baby in the womb is the, the early, in, in its earliest stages. A baby in its earliest stages. The only difference between me and it is size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependence. That's it. We don't get to kill people because they're small or not fully grown. We don't get to kill people because of their environment. Our environments change all the time. We go in and out of different places, and our value as human beings isn't contingent upon wherever we happen to be located at the time. Then the last one, degree of dependence. People say, ah, see, that's where I got you. That baby is dependent. Upon its mother, couldn't live without her. You know who else is utterly dependent on his mother? My four month old son, Titus. Can we kill him? He's he's utterly dependent. He can't do anything for himself. We don't feed him, he doesn't eat. Where do we draw the line? And here's the answer we don't. We don't draw the line. God does. And he draws it at conception. Another argument we hear a lot is cases of rape and incest. That's a sensitive issue. That's a sensitive issue. Certainly have to handle that delicately for sure. The bottom line is this. Two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. If we're talking about justice, where's the justice in imposing the death penalty on the innocent party? How do we get there? The rapist is the one who deserves the death penalty, right? He did something to someone else's body he ought not do. And we think it's acceptable to do to that baby's body what we ought not to do. A woman is violated and a reasonable solution to us is that the rapist gets jail time, but the baby gets the death penalty? 
That's perverted justice. Again, I realize it is a sensitive issue and it's one that has to be dealt with delicately. Delicately, though, not violently, which is what we've had so far. Abortion is not a solution under any circumstances. Now, another objection that we'll get is, what if the mother's life is in danger? And I, I thankfully, had an opportunity when I was taking ethics in seminary to, to choose an issue to defend and debate, and this, this, was, this, this was what I chose. And you know what I found out? That argument is a complete myth. It's a, it's a complete myth. It's an emotional heartstring like, like the rape scenario that defenders of abortion use to justify their wicked practices. The first rule of being a physician is do no harm. And you know what the attorney general says about this issue? Is that the goal always should be the preservation of life, both lives, both lives. In the, very, in the extremely rare scenario that a pregnancy is, is putting a woman's life in danger, the goal is not to hack it up to pieces and get it out of her so it doesn't kill her. It's to safely remove the baby so that both lives have a, have a shot at survival. Now, sometimes that's not always possible, right? The baby may be so early in its stages of development, there's just... It's just not going to be able to live outside of the womb. But the goal in the procedure is the preservation of both lives. Why? Because God says it matters and it should be valued that way, not discarded and thrown away. Conclusion on point number one. Abortion is definitely not simply a black and white issue. It is a life or death issue. God says life begins at conception in every life, no matter how big or small or how wanted or unwanted, is made in his own image, and he has purpose for us. Point number two, it's okay to celebrate the downfall of evil. What does God say about Christians rejoicing over evil losing? Look at some texts. There's a lot of verses we could go to here, but I'm going to just mention a few, okay? Okay. First one, from 1 Samuel 17, David just sunk a rock into Goliath's forehead, all right? And then here's what the text says happens next. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it, with Goliath's own sword. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The head of Goliath was Israel's trophy. The enemies of God were driven back, and God's people rejoiced. The Red Sea, Exodus 14. Fun fact, you know, when you're in seminary, you've got to remember where all this stuff is, right? And, and I'm just going to give this to you. This is pure gold, okay? If you're ever trying to remember where that account is in Exodus, it's Exodus 14, 
1-4. Israel had to make a one for it. Okay? That one's free. You're welcome. All right? In Exodus 14, God delivers his people out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea and they pass through on dry ground. The Egyptians pursued behind them in order to slaughter them all. And God shuts up the sea over them and drowns all of them. And God's people break out in the song. This is a long one, so just listen. Hold on with me. You can turn there if you'd like. Look in, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, if you've got your Bible with you. I'm going to start reading. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. Last one. I won't read the whole thing. It's too long. So I'm going to skip around a little bit. Revelation 18. God is laying waste to the wicked who remain on the earth and heaven is commanded to rejoice. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Chapter 19, John says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. A little bit farther down, once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. We get embarrassed by that now. We get, we get embarrassed by that now. Is God being naughty? Here's what we need to get. If we really understood how serious sin is, the wickedness of it, 
the depths of our depravity, the offense that it is to a holy God, we would praise him wherever we see it destroyed. And for right now, we see through a mirror dimly what would be plain for us to see in glory. And they saw it, and they rejoiced. Zeal for God's justice and triumph over evil is not unbecoming of a Christian. So stop believing that it is. Objections to celebrating over the downfall of evil. It's not Christ-like. It's not. It's certainly not American hippie Jesus-like. I'll grant that. But it certainly is riding on a pale horse with a robe dipped in blood, Jesus-like. Are we ashamed of that? In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Are we ashamed of that? Do we get embarrassed about God doing God stuff? Like punishing evil and sin and wickedness? We don't complain when he punished Jesus for our sin and he didn't even deserve it. We like that part. There is such a thing as evil and God intends to destroy it. And you read the prophets, it's replete with examples of his judgment coming down where it should. We could argue way too late. In his long suffering, he is patient and he waits, but he finally does bring justice. And God tells his people, don't weep for them. Don't weep. God is merciful, but he is also just, and we praise him for both. Not just the parts about him we like best. There are other objections to celebrating the downfall of the wicked, but here's what I think they all boil down to, okay? This is, this is the big kahuna, right? The one people really want to be able to throw in your face, especially virtue-signaling Christians who want to be loved by the world. Here it is. The reason people aren't Christians is because of people like you. We're supposed to be sweet, so they'll want to be like us. Wrong. Wrong. I don't know where we got that idea, but it's not in here. Sweet, pacifist behavior doesn't win people to Christ. The gospel wins people to Christ. In Newsflash, the cross had blood on it. Grace has blood on it, doesn't it, Foster? Blood was the payment for sin. Blood for sin, don't forget it. The reason people aren't Christians isn't because they don't like you, y'all. It's because they hate Jesus. That's why they're not Christians. It's not my sin that keeps somebody from becoming a Christian. It's their sin that keeps them from being a Christian. It's their sin that separates them from the holy God. I don't have that kind of power, and neither do you. Until they recognize that sin is sin and that they're guilty of it, why on earth would they ever think they need to be saved from it? Saved from what? What need is there for reconciliation? The reality is people don't like hearing that they're sinners and will be judged by God. I didn't. People don't like hearing that they're sinners and that judgment awaits them. And we say, well, don't shoot the messenger. Problem is, they don't have a problem with that. They'll shoot you for telling them. They'll either 
cancel you. They won't be friends with you. They won't associate with you. And may I just suggest that if you don't have some people mad at you over what you believe, you either don't know what it is that you believe or you've never told anyone. I'm going to say something right now that's hard for me to say. Okay? And I debated on whether or not to say it. But then I remembered when I heard it, it changed my life. So I'm going to, I'm going to say this in the interest of wanting to see you holy, not in seeing you hurt. But I heard a preacher once say, this world is like a mad, barking dog. And if that dog is not barking at you, you're a part of that dog's family. He only barks at strangers. I think that's true. And I think if we're honest, if we're brutally honest, we're all a little afraid of being strangers. Don't be afraid to look strange to the world right now, y'all. The world wants you to be like Lot's wife. Lot's wife looked back. You remember that? God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, don't do it on the sake of 50 righteous people in the city. Okay. Don't do it on the sake of 40, 30, 20. It keeps going on. God, okay. The problem was there were no righteous people. So God rains down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells everybody, get out of the city and flee. Don't turn back. But that city had Lot's, heart, Lot's wife's heart. She looked back. She looked back. Crying for the destruction that was there. Stand on the truth of God's word, what he says about life and death and sin and victory, y'all. Don't be cowed into making concessions for sin. Don't let people hush you or come up with a list of things that you have to do or believe in order to stand firmly on the truth that abortion is murder. And that this very small step we've just seen in the right direction is something that we ought to be able to celebrate to smile, to applaud, to hug, to cheer, to feast, and shoot off fireworks. The fight has only begun. If we don't know where the battle lines are, y'all, or what victory looks like, what good will we be? I'm not going to let what I've said this morning die in the death of a thousand nuances. There are conversations that can be had tangential sort of things that, that probably need to be said. But I'm not going to say them here. I do want to say one thing. We pray for people's salvation, not their destruction. Let's not get that confused. We pray for people's salvation, not their destruction. We want, we genuinely desire to see people do well. We want to see people be saved. But we also pray for the destruction of evil empires and institutions that are an affront to a holy God. Because that too is glorifying to him. Jesus died to make stuff like this happen, y'all. When he was born into the world, and, and, and later he's in the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan. For the first time ever, a man was able to withstand that temptation and resist him. And then we find out later, he came, he says, and bound the strong man and plundered his goodies. Jesus came back, or came to take back 
what Satan took away. He came to take what was rightfully his. And we should be able to applaud him without shedding a tear. We can applaud him without shedding a tear. Let's pray. Lord our God, we need encouragement this morning. We need wisdom. We need discernment. We're in a spiritual battle where the stakes just got higher. And we need you to show us how to think, what to say, what to do. Make us ready, always, to give a reason defense for the hope that's within us, Father. Use your word and our witness during this time to win souls to yourself. And let us have that hope, but remind us, Father, too, that it will be a perfume to some and a stench to others. May that be well with our souls. And may you receive the glory either way in the regeneration of some hearts and in the hardening of others. We love you, God. Help us to love what it is that we see you are doing. Let us love what you love and hate what you hate. Enable us by your spirit to think your thoughts after you so we may be the salt and light in the world you intend for us to be and not what the world wants us to be. Do all this, Lord, for your namesake, for the good of your kingdom and for the benefit of the world. Bring healing, God. In Jesus' name, amen.